0: How often do you look for treasure in life scars? In what ways can we look after our mental and emotional health? And who are you having open and honest conversations with? Welcome to the Kintsugi Hope Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to the Kintsugi Hope Podcast. My name is Jess and I have a special guest here with me today, Dr. Chi-Chi O'Brien, And he is here with us to talk about anxiety. Chi-Chi, can you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, Jess. Uh, I'm an adult psychiatrist. I work in the NHS and in private practice in London. So I see people aged 18 plus with a range of mental health conditions, Mm -hmm. including um, depression, other mood disorders, a whole range of anxiety disorders. I know we're gonna talk about that today. Mm -hmm. And um, I also uh, and one of the directors of the mind and soul foundation so uh, we look at uh, aspects of mental health within a spiritual context um, within the church uh, so we're like a brother or sister organization uh, to you guys at can mm. hope
0: yeah brilliant so you sound like a quite a busy guy is that right particularly within the last 18 months you must have must have been quite busy for you
1: It's been the busiest uh, period of my career and the same is true of the psychologists and various therapists that I work with. Demand has really gone up. Uh, Clearly people have been struggling uh, in many ways with respect to their mental health. So I think it's really important just to help people to navigate through these difficult times and, and that's why these sorts of podcasts are really important.
0: Brilliant. What kind of stuff have you been exposed to after the late 18, last 18 months? Has it has it been different to before COVID?
1: It's been a mixture. There are always new people uh, coming into my practice who've maybe not had mental health difficulties. I would say that there's been more of that. And it's really affected people right across the lifespan. Although I only see adults, I've definitely seen more younger adults. Um, so people finishing... Uh, high school, uh, university students, if you just think about the disruption that there's been to their education, to their social lives, I've seen a lot more of them. But pretty much every situation you could imagine, so um, I normally see pregnant mums, new mothers um, and even the process of giving birth has become more challenging so the sort of support that you might have with relatives who may live abroad, that's become difficult with the travel restrictions, even having your partner there for some of the scans or the birth uh, has been difficult. So that's been really testing. Um, and I think loneliness has been uh, another factor for people, again, across the age ranges. And with people working from home, mm-hmm. the lack of so- socialization that you normally get with your work colleagues has really hit people who may be a single, Uh, have a small network of friends. So it's been pretty broad. Interestingly, for those people who have existing mental health problems, some have done okay. Um, And I think particularly for people with anxiety disorders, uh, anxiety, one of the key features is that there tends to be a sense of overthinking and catastrophizing. So I think for some of that cohort of people some of that thinking which may have been viewed as as wasted energy historically has helped them to come to terms with quite uncertain times. And I think for some people who haven't had mental health difficulties historically, the chaos and uncertainty has really thrown them off.
0: Right. That's so interesting, isn't it? How we, we're all, we all cope so differently with these situations. And actually, as you were speaking, uh, I was thinking about You know when you spoke about how you've seen um, a lot of you know mothers who, because of that isolation, because of having to go through something like having a child by themselves, that that's actually it's not good for us to be by ourselves, Um, particularly in such you know such life-changing moments like having a child. um, You know you need that love and support of your family around so. No wonder that people are really struggling at the moment. And um, I guess my first question would be, you briefly touched on it just now, but kind of anxiety, it's it's a word we hear all the time, which is a positive thing because it's allowed us to understand a little bit more about it. But from your perspective, in your own words, how would you describe anxiety?
1: I think the first thing I, I'd want to say about anxiety is that it's a normal phenomenon. So let's break it down to what's going on uh, in the body physiologically. Anxiety results from um, a part of our nervous system uh, being activated, and uh, that's called the sympathetic nervous system. More commonly, we think about it as the fight, flight, or freeze response. So if we think of a scenario where Right now I'm sitting comfortably in my consulting room, but if a a tiger were to jump out behind me um, and was gonna attack me, that's where my fight, flight, or freeze response comes into play. And those are the three things I can do. But what drives that is that uh, there's a hormone that's secreted uh, in the body, uh, adrenaline, and an associated hormone called cortisol. But adrenaline prepares your body to do one of those three things. And it does that by increasing the heart rate. So the blood's pumping around the body, uh, the pupils become dilated, uh, the breathing becomes very rapid. And so I can either go to combat with this tiger, I can run for my dear life, or I'm just gonna sit here in my chair and see what happens. Right. So that's the sympathetic nervous system. Now, normally there's a counterbalancing system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And if you have fight, flight or freeze, this one is the rest and digest. So it feeds the body's digestive tract and it basically has the opposite effects. It slows down the heart rate, slows down the breathing and it just helps us to settle. Now, normally those two systems are in sync with each other but anxiety can result from uh, there being too much sympathetic activity relative to the parasympathetic nervous system.
0: Mm.
1: And so that's where we get um, sustained levels that are high of adrenaline and cortisol. And what that results in then are the psychological and physical symptoms of anxiety. So the physical symptoms can include things like palpitations. So that's where your heart is racing We might sweat. So again, think of the tiger. What would happen if you're terrified? You feel your heart beating, you start sweating. Mm. You might even start shaking. Um, I might have difficulty breathing. I might have a knot in my tummy. And then you have the psychological symptoms of anxiety. So uh, that's being irritable, uh, constantly ruminating. So thoughts just going round and round in one's head Mm. and just that sense of worry.
0: That's really really helpful. I think we we often think of anxiety as just the thing that goes on in our our brains, but actually it's it's very physical as well. Um, I guess we hear we've heard about that f- uh fright flight or freeze the f- the three Fs there. Um, I guess how does somebody in that moment? Is it a conscious decision that they make on which one they're going to do or is it more about personality is it more about what's worked in the past that like what's the process that goes on in our in our minds to decide how to respond to that tiger
1: i think it's quite instinctive uh, there will be a natural tendency for some people to become more anxious than others and if we think about stress more broadly defined When we're under stress uh we will have a go-to strategy that's that's largely unconscious i would say so particular behaviors that we might resort to um and also when we move into the conscious sphere coping strategies that we would tend to go to but maybe without thinking it through too much there are just particular ways that we try to cope with stressful situations. Having said that, uh, with support, whether it's um, reading resources or having therapy, people can challenge their go-to strategies and think about things in a different way. So the very premise of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is that it's thinking about your cognitions, your thoughts and your behaviors. So how your thoughts, feelings and behavior are interlinked. And it's a process of challenging the status quo and seeing if there's a different response that can come about.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I guess it takes a lot of kind of strength and work to change that, um, doesn't it? And I, I guess how how can we look at and because the reference that you just gave about the tiger coming into the room that's obviously um not many people would be chilled about that um unless you were a tiger tamer then or you had pet tigers at home or you were at a zoo and it wasn't that unexpected but I guess um there's obviously situations that aren't prompted by a physical thing like a tiger being in the room that can spark anxiety it's it, it could just be something that pops into our head. How do we how do we deal with that when it's when it's not like a thing that's actually what's happened in front of us, it's just something that's going on internally that sparks anxiety.
1: What you're describing is what we refer to as anticipatory anxiety. Okay. So I gave the example quite an extreme example of something that would probably scare most people. What what typically happens when anxiety becomes more pervasive is there has been something that's happened at some point in the past. And the brain, um, we're very emotional in our, um, in our storage of memory. Right. And therefore there may just be something that's happened that's significant to which we say, I better not forget that thing because that made me really, really scared now in the future there may be situations as you alluded to that aren't as life-threatening as a tiger about to maul me but the the traffic light system in in the brain goes off and says there's danger here so where objectively it doesn't appear to be a dangerous situation we then get conditioned into thinking i need to respond in that way the fight flight or freeze and so there's an exaggerated response to a situation that, that maybe doesn't require mm. um, such a, a firm response. And that is what is happening. So we anticipate something bad happening and, and that's where it becomes much more pervasive and can start to impair our day-to-day functioning. And mm. that's the key thing. When we think about the difference between anxiety, which I said is normal, and everyone becomes anxious and an anxiety disorder, that's one of the, the things that we'd look for. To what extent is it affecting someone's day-to-day livelihood?
0: Mm, that's, that's really helpful. Um, at what point should, can we spot within ourselves, and you, you mentioned this, I guess if we go a week where well, anxiety is, is affecting our day-to-day lives, or we can go a month, at what point do we go, this is maybe something more serious? Because I guess the extreme situation we've just lived through in the last 18 months and are still living through in, in some places with COVID, um, we've lived a very strange existence for the last 18 months, which has been extremely anxiety-inducing for a lot of people, um, I guess, and, and some people m- may never have experienced anxiety before, um so at what point do we go oh this is just I'm feeling anxious because of this particular situation there's a tiger in my room and I need to deal with it or at what point does it become an anxiety disorder that you actually need to seek help and get help with
1: yeah it's a great question and it's it's difficult to give a cut off in terms of time right but just uh expanding on that that concept of uh, our day-to-day functioning Let's just think about the things that we do. Um, We uh, have to get up, attend to our personal hygiene, we eat, we might go to work, look after children, study, uh, interact with friends and family. And at any of those touch points, there can be a drop off, which might be noticed by us or by other people. Okay. Um, Clearly, if it's one day and there's something specific that's driven A difficult period that probably doesn't warrant any professional help but if it is sustained and i'd say a number of weeks if it's Mm. impacting on our work on our ability to study and maybe there's an exam period coming up if we're not able to look after ourselves or other people that we have caring responsibilities for if it's starting to impact on our levels of motivation just in in looking after ourselves in, in eating food if our mood's dropping, those are some of the markers that that would move us into the category of something that is a bit more significant and, and requires some support.
0: Mm. And I know there are lots of different types of anxiety disorder. Could you just go into a couple of those for us and help us understand those terms?
1: Absolutely. Uh, there are a whole range and it is tricky because there isn't a clear cutoff between what's normal and uh, what I would term to be pathological. Yeah. But if I give a few examples, um, and we've been talking about quite generalized symptoms of anxiety, uh, and that is one of the, the main anxiety disorders, a generalized anxiety disorder. And that's the sort of anxiety that might be present from pretty soon after someone wakes up until they go to bed. Um for much of the day. It doesn't necessarily occur in response to any particular thing that has happened. Mm-hmm. There may have been um, something that's been psychologically traumatic that led to its onset, but it just occurs every day. Uh, and it has that mix of the physical and, and psychological symptoms of anxiety. And I would contrast that with um, say a panic disorder where people have very discrete panic attacks and you can effectively time them and they might last for 30 minutes or or up to two hours typically. And so you get the same symptoms, but they occur um, over a fixed period of time. And that even more so will have uh, an origin in a particular event that was very stressful for people. Other common anxiety disorders include OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder where people get repetitive obsessional thoughts and or compulsive behaviors. So things like excessive hand washing, checking, having to have things in particular orders or engaging in in ritualistic behaviors like having to count to a particular number, otherwise there's gonna be bad luck. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other one that we we tend to hear a lot about is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm Now that is where people have experienced highly significant, often life-threatening trauma and they get specific symptoms, which include flashbacks, nightmares and intrusive thoughts in which they relive that traumatic event as if it's happening again, even though objectively it it clearly isn't.
0: So if you've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, like you just mentioned, can you recover um, from that?
1: Absolutely. I see people uh, with anxiety disorders pretty much on a, on a daily basis. Um, I think it was important to highlight the range of, of disorders because um, whilst broadly speaking, um, the tools that we have at our disposal are, are fairly similar. Some of them do require quite specialist treatments, mm. um, but there can be very good responses to psychological therapy. And I'd say that in most cases, talking therapy is is, uh, number one Mm -hmm. uh, on the menu of things that we need to offer people. And in some cases, but certainly not all, medication can be helpful, either just to take the edge off uh, the anxiety or to help to lift people's mood if they're also getting uh, depressive symptoms as a result of uh, quite prolonged anxiety uh, disorder symptoms mm.
0: and how does it work for those that are maybe not experiencing anxiety or an anxiety disorder or a diagnosis or anything like that how does it work for those that are supporting maybe a loved one or a, or a child or a partner or a family member or a friend how can we because I think that's often if not as hard as the person who's going through the the struggle themselves obviously the person with anxiety has to live that every day but sometimes so does the person who the loved one and the friend if they're in that caring role how can we how can we speak about that more because I don't know whether we do enough would you agree
1: I think that's a really fair point and it can be extremely stressful uh, for carers I'd always encourage anyone who's struggling as a result of looking after somebody else to get some support for themselves. I think that's really important to say. I have to say that it's one of those situations where, because uh, I get asked this question a lot by carers, mm. you want to do a lot, but actually what you can do, I think, is relatively limited and people find that to be quite hard to, to accept. Yeah. Yeah. But the important thing that you can do is uh, to provide encouragement reassurance if you happen to have some knowledge about the nature of the anxiety um, just a bit of um, education to to the person that's going through it because it's always easier to to see it from the outside looking in but most importantly of all if the if the difficulties are quite pronounced signposting them to appropriate support. And in the first instance, that's often gonna be um, the GP for people and, and GPs uh, are trained um, in treating uh, mental disorders to a degree. Um, and sometimes, cause what you need to be able to do as a doctor is to tease out, is it normal anxiety or is it something a bit more profound? Is it something that can be treated relatively simply by talking therapy or might it need uh, support from a psychiatrist like myself? So going to the GP, um, some people um, seek help from therapy but even before you get to that stage, there might be useful resources, podcasts, books, uh, online tools that, that you can do to support yourself. So I think just having a little bit of knowledge um, as someone who's trying to provide support can go a really long way.
0: Mm. How about people who are, you know, entering back into their normal kind of maybe routine, they are maybe getting back on the tube, they're going to the office, um, they're going back into the shops again, and they've got that heightened sense of that feeling like, a tiger's going to jump out because of the last year we're, we've we just almost been on edge and it's exhausting how is there anything helpful that you can say for those people that are, are, are in that situation
1: I would want to reassure people that that's a really common challenge for people um, so they're certainly not alone in experiencing that and the response I think that it requires is one that's sensible, pragmatic, and gentle. In therapy, where people are having difficulties of the nature you described, we might term that agoraphobia. And um, the approach that's taken isn't to uh, tell them to go to a packed uh, sporting event where there are thousands of people, we do graded exposure. So if you were to rate Uh, things that you find stressful or anxiety provoking on a scale of one to 10, you start with uh, the things that are a one or a two, and then you build up to the eight or nine. Right. So just taking that logic into the situation you've described, if someone's maybe going into the office, don't wait until um, the day that everyone's got to be back in the office. You could build it up. You could do a dry run on a weekend where it's maybe not so busy and just plot your route, um, and that can just help to take some of the heat out of that process. Mm. And similarly, if you're if you're going out to the shops for the first time, maybe just thinking through uh, what a, a quieter time might be for you to do it for the first time, um, and just build it slowly. Uh, so I think it, it doesn't require uh, any rocket science, but not overexposing yourself mm. uh, first time round is a really key principle.
0: Yeah. Like I don't want to be around lots of people. So I'm just going to go to a really busy place and expose myself in the hope that, that I'll get over my fear. But actually that can almost make it worse. I, I love that gentle approach that you've just described. Um, I think we've all got a, at Kintsugi Hope we've been speaking about going gently and um, I think it's such a powerful thing to do with ourselves as we move into whatever we're facing, even um, if it's not, you know, COVID related, just to go gently with ourselves as we, as we move through life, but also going gently with other people as well, because what might, might trigger someone else, um, or what might trigger you might not trigger someone else. And I think I've been very aware of that, um, in the last few months of actually this person might be actually, this might actually be a trigger for them. And how can I be mindful of that and be kind and be gentle towards them? Um, Cheetah, you've got such a wealth of knowledge. Um, I guess, I would love to know what sparked your interest in mental health um, and do you have like a personal journey that led you to this point where you're able to sit and listen with other people and help them on their journey to recovery?
1: I don't think it's the most interesting one. I'm a, I'm a second generation psychiatrist. My, my father still practices as a psychiatrist. Right. So, Like a lot of children, I was interested to know what my dad did um psychiatrists have developed this reputation for being quite eccentric maybe a little bit odd and my dad was nothing like that so (laughs) I never got got drawn into some of those stereotypes that exist within the medical community because it's not maybe the most popular specialty for people to go into right um I was a very sporty person even when I was at medical school and, and the, the stereotypical thing is that if you're into sports, you're going to become an orthopedic surgeon. Um, but right. actually, I, had, I, I always wanted to do psychiatry. Uh, when I knew uh, I was going to med school, and just before medical school, I worked in a mental health hospital, um, actually because that was the only job I could get that summer. <laughs> but I absolutely loved it. Uh, I was working as a care assistant. Um, and just that opportunity to speak to to patients to really get to know about their lives in a broad sense, uh, and then still do what doctors do, which is to figure Mm. out what's going on, make a diagnosis, come up with a plan for supporting people, but being able to do that in a way that really is holistic. So Mm. you look at all aspects of a an individual's life and you try and support them holistically. That's been really powerful
0: that's really helpful is it possible that a life then lifestyle changes can actually help somebody in their journey to recovery like and you not need any medication or you know formal formal therapy that actually it could just be a lifestyle change that needs to happen
1: that can certainly happen I think the the important point to make is that it's never possible to say that um that's the case without seeing somebody and doing a full assessment. Um, I certainly see people who have um, concerns about medication and it really boils down to that core skill of formulating a diagnosis, going with what the evidence shows. So if I give the example of um, mood disorders, which I, I said I sometimes see, if someone's got a really severe depression, we know that there's strong evidence that you need probably a combination of medication and talking therapy. Mm. Whereas if you have mild depression, there isn't strong evidence necessarily to support using medication. But it's important, I think, just to be open-minded. As a doctor, I try to be as collaborative as possible, exploring any concerns people have. And it's about working together then in, in coming up with a plan that will support people, empower them, And, um, yeah, just allay any of those fears that they may have.
0: Mm. What would you say, because we hear a lot about, you know, in, in order to look after your mental health more broadly, there's lots of practical physical things that you can do, like, you know, have a healthy diet and exercise and, you know, meet up with friends and talk to somebody about how you're feeling. In your experience, do those things do those things actually work is my first question because I think we hear a lot about that and I'm not I'm not saying they don't but I'd love to know your opinion um and the second thing is um do you have any other things apart from the ones that I just mentioned that you think are worth considering
1: so I think a lot of the advice is given in a very general sense and if if we're talking to society at large um there are we've just talked about anxiety disorders and we've highlighted how many different anxiety disorders there are Mm. and then you've got a whole range of other mental health conditions it's really good that we're talking about mental health um in a broad sense but there's a spectrum um that goes from mental health broadly defined right through to mental illness and i sometimes see people with quite significant Uh, mental disorders so we've got to be careful with the advice because it might be relevant for someone who doesn't have any significant mental health problem but wants to optimize their well-being yeah there will be overlap but that may not be helpful for somebody who's going through a chronic mental health challenge isolation I think is one of those things that is relevant across the board so I think the sentiment of people remaining connected having a support network i can't think of many situations where that isn't relevant um it's important to tailor um the treatment or intervention to the individual so some people swear by exercise as something that is boosting their mental health but it's not for everyone it's really important to recognize that so i think the key thing is you've got to look at the individual and that's what Again, we do, as doctors, we don't just have um, the same advice for every person. It's getting to know the individual, what makes them tick, how have they ended up in this position, and what resources do they have to help them. Mm-hmm. Having said all that, I would give some some general tips that go beyond exercise for people who are uh, maybe prone to anxiety. Some of them may sound really simple, but these are things that... Um, do have some evidence base behind them. The first one, believe it or not, is uh, particularly for people working from home, keeping a tidy desk Mm. uh, and decluttering. This is thought to lower levels of cortisol. That's one of the hormones I talked about. Really? If if the levels are sustained, uh, can just prolong stress and, and maybe put people at risk of experiencing more severe anxiety.
0: It sounds it's like you're um, you're speaking directly to me, Chi-Chi, here. My, I am prone to an untidy desk. Um, <laughs> so yeah. maybe I should take note of that. <laughs>
1: but it makes sense. It, it does, does. It yeah. Ad- it adds to stress, generally speaking. <laughs> A second one I would say is, um, going back to what I said about the um, sympathetic versus... Uh, parasympathetic nervous systems and when they're out of sync we can find that when we're anxious our our breathing is very rapid Mm -hmm. so there's a thing called 7-11 breathing and it's really simple breathing in for seven seconds and then breathing out for 11 seconds and because the out breath is prolonged you're actually um, activating the parasympathetic nervous system so that should have the effect of slowing down your breathing so that's a simple one to do and the third thing uh which we haven't touched on is how anxiety this is a marker of where anxiety is more significant it can actually start to affect people's sleep they go to bed anxious and they might actually wake up in the middle of the night because of Mm -hmm. anxious thoughts and so my encouragement for anyone going through that is before you go to sleep either get a piece of paper or if you've got a journal use that and write down what those anxious thoughts are and if you can have a a practical thing that you can do maybe over the next 24 hours that might address each of those anxious thoughts so it might be that you're you're worried about your finances so the the thing you might do the action would be to to print off your bank statement that doesn't mean that you're going to sort out all your financial concerns but it's just one thing that you can do and if you don't do it the challenge is you might just be waking up at, at night thinking I'm really worried about money. I'm worried about money. And that just disrupts your sleep, which then has a knock on effect of making you more anxious the following day. So those would be things I think can be quite helpful. Uh, and those are bits of advice I give to some of my patients.
0: That's brilliant. You're right. We like sleep is such a huge thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um and I've, I've heard a lot of advice about the power of like a routine, a good nighttime routine, in terms of slowing down, not being on your device too late, um, maybe having like, um, a hot or a cold shower, depending on the temperature, um, at at the time, like, um, not eating too late into the evening, and, you know, not having caffeine too late as well, um, Are there any other things that can help us get into like a really good nighttime routine?
1: A nighttime routine starts in the morning. So um, setting your your alarm at the same time where possible every day. I appreciate some people do shift patterns, but having consistent waking time, getting some natural sunlight, preferably by being outside, uh, walking, say for a minimum of 15 minutes every day, Limiting your caffeine intake to the morning is quite important. And then making sure, particularly when you're working from home, if people continue to do so, that you have that bit of downtime in the evening. Right. Whether it's watching TV or going for a walk, getting some more fresh air, that you're actually signaling to your brain that the working day has ended uh, and just, uh, just trying to relax. And you mentioned having a hot shower. What that does is it raises your core body temperature. Your body then actually naturally starts to cool itself and that helps to promote the sleep.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Mind, body are so interlinked. It's so, so helpful. Chi Chi, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I really, really grateful for you spending your time with us this afternoon. And um, yeah, if people want to connect with mind and soul, how can they do that?
1: Oh, you've put me on the spot because oh I, I'm just trying to remember. the. Uh, well, it's the it's the mindandsoulfoundation.org. That's the website. Right. I've, I've passed that one. And we are also on Twitter. Right. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten the, the Twitter handle. That's but if okay. You go to the Mind and Soul Foundation, you will find us. Brilliant. Slap on, slap on the wrist for me. We're <laughs> Don't also worry. on Instagram.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I'm sure if people just search Mind and Soul, it will come up. Chi Chi, thank you so much for your time here today.
1: Okay, thanks, Jess. Take care.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to the Kintsugi Hope podcast. It's been so good to have you with us. Please remember to come back for more episodes and share with your friends and like and subscribe.